How does the law impact and shape the way we live? Welcome to the Law and Life podcast brought to you by TGB Lawyers. We are back for another episode of the Law and Life podcast um, and this is part two of our deep dive into military compensation claims and the entire process around that. Uh, joining me again today, we have Tyndall Gas Bentley partner, Tim White. G'day, Michael. And uh, Senior Associate, Brianna Tapscott. Hi, Michael. We're back again. It's good to be back. Um, now, uh, we'll kick off today um, with something that's topical and it's uh, been in the news and you know, will be of interest to um, our listeners here. And there's been some recent comments in Parliament by the Defence Minister, Maurice Payne. Uh, Brianna, could you tell us a little bit about what's happened? Yeah, so I think um, last time we spoke, we mentioned about the expanded powers of the Defence Force Ombudsman. Um, so the Defence Force Ombudsman has been accepting complaints of abuse since about December of last year. Um, there's now been a, um, a, an announcement made by the Federal Defence Minister that those powers are to be expanded to enable the Ombudsman to offer reparation um, payments to complainants of abuse. So we're, we're eagerly keeping our eyes on that. Um, we're thinking that, there's, that that expansion will probably take place in about January of, of next year. Um, so that will offer um, people an opportunity to um, receive similar outcomes that the DART process was offering to complainants some years ago. Um, the level of liability, the threshold is slightly will be slightly lower than that. Um, that you may see with a, a DVA claim. So um, we're just keeping our eyes open there as to, to, to what that can offer people and uh, with a view then that we can, can help them with that complaint process as we did with the DART. Well, it certainly sounds like a, a step in the right direction. Um, it's certainly been something that I think that we've been chasing for a long time as well as a lot of sort of advocates out there for, uh, for injured defence personnel. Um, so... Look, having said that, you know, we should probably have a look now as well at things that we've missed out on with the last podcast. Um, there was a lot of ground to cover in, in that one. And something we didn't get around to, Tim, was um, permanent impairment claims. Um, so how, how do they work in this sort of military aspect? Mm. I suppose we're talking here about where someone's had their claim accepted already uh, by the DVA, so they have an accepted condition, psychological or physical, and... Once that's occurred, a number of things uh, flow from that. One of them is potentially a uh, lump sum payment for the injury or injuries that have been accepted. So a permanent impairment claim is effectively, although it's not calculated this way, but it's meant to be some compensation for pain and suffering uh, that the member has now as a result of the injury or injuries that they've got from their service. So for um, an example, um, if we look at a psychological injury, what we see from the people that come in is that a lot of the time they've got a decision uh, from the DVA. It sets out um, a whole range of things. Often these decisions are really long. They can be 10 or 15 pages of information and it's really hard to decipher what it's actually saying unless you work in this area and you have a good understanding of what it means but for the lay person receiving this sort of letter it can be pretty daunting so our role is to talk them through that and explain what it all means and what compensation is being paid for what injuries and often 
we see that the um, amount that's being offered initially uh, isn't always right. Usually, uh, in fact, I'd sort of say 80 or 90% of the time, roughly, from the clients that we speak with, the initial letter setting out that figure ends up being lower than what we achieve subsequently, uh, um, having then advised them and got involved and got uh, further medical reports and dealt with the DVA. So the majority of the time, once we become involved, we end up getting an amount of compensation higher than what was put to them in, in the initial letter. There's a number of steps to go through, but a lot of the time it's about getting um, more detailed medical evidence and there's a number of factors that go into working out this compensation. It's not just a figure that's plucked out of the air. There's quite a, a logical number of steps that have to be gone through to determine that. So with um, a psychological condition, for example, there's a number of different aspects that have to be considered under uh, particular tables and for each of those different aspects there's a points or a points scheme that's used so but the layperson's not going to know how to decipher that themselves no. are they so this is about sort of getting the lawyer in to know which questions to ask and essentially which boxes to tick that's to, right. to maximize potentially what this payout could be exactly and getting uh and asking a medical practitioner their views about those topics, those issues, and getting the comment from the member, the client, but also having it backed up by the doctor as well. So then it justifies uh, the DVA increasing uh, the amount of the payment. Um, so it's important that it's done thoroughly because usually these payments are only made once, so mm. once they've been received, it's very rare that another payment like this can be made subsequently. So it's important that uh, people are well informed when they get this paperwork, they don't just read it and think, oh, I've been awarded $30,000 or $50,000 or whatever the amount is, and that's the end of it. There's certainly rights to review the decision, and it's really important that um, the individual understands how the figure's been calculated because it could be low. Mm, and I think, you know, that that's certainly impacted with the amount of times, you know, you've discussed clients who just, you know, one of the first things I always say to you is, you know, the system is just so unwieldy and complex, you know, and, and, and it's, it, I guess, you know, the human nature of this when you're going through something traumatic as well would just be to go, well, I'm just going to sign this and try and move on with my life. So it's important, I guess, to be patient about this as well and to, you know, just get the right advice. It is, and it, it's not a lot of uh, heavy involvement from uh, the client or the member because a lot of the information is obtained by us from a GP or a treating psychiatrist or a treating orthopaedic doctor. So there's not a heavy onus on the person that we're helping to do a lot of work. We do most of the work and the information is obtained from other people. So you're right though, it does involve having a bit of patience and working through the process, but we're not talking about years normally. For this, it's usually months, um, but it's really important. The case is only as strong as the medical evidence that you've got. Um, and so it's our role to make sure that the necessary information is obtained and 
the majority of the time it supports an increase in the payment and uh, it's a this payment's usually uh, not taxed and it's it's um, important to get it right because it's usually only paid once and these could be you know, be the, and these could be both physical and mental injuries it, it, there's no sort of different sort of process between those two that can just apply to either one yeah absolutely and the probably that's probably the area where we probably see most of them where it is a psychological injury because there's more uh, variables that are taken into account and there's probably more subjectivity to assessing the psychological injury. So a lot of the clients that we do see with these disputes for the lump sum payment are dealing with PTSD or depression or anxiety, those type alcohol abuse, those type of conditions that there's a, some excellent doctors out there uh, that can assist with not just treatment but also assessing these types of conditions for us. And even the calculation process is difficult too. So what we would probably suggest is if someone has a permanent impairment determination and even if they may be happy with what's been assessed, it's still worth getting that checked over by um, Tim or I because the way that the permanent impairment is calculated by the DVA is, DVA is not as simple as adding all the numbers together. It's a very complex calculation that requires a formula. So even still, I would suggest that that's something that needs to be checked by someone like Tim and I because when you'd need to check that the calculation method's been used correctly. And how would you know? If, Correct. If you've been injured, how on earth would you know? Yeah, yep. yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Brianna, sort of in, in my sort of experience of just sort of, you know, talking to you guys a lot and, you know, sort of creating some of the, you know, helping with the blog content and, and doing these podcasts with you guys, something that pops up often that we haven't touched on before is this concept of statement of principle. Um, SOP, it's another acronym. Clearly Add to the, the mix, yeah. DVA loves yep. acronyms. <laughs> um, but could you, you know, just sort of explain what that is yeah. um, and why yep. it's so important, please? Yeah, so, so I think last time we spoke, we talked about VEA and MRCA, MRCA claims. So a SOP, a Statement of Principle, would apply for either of those types of claims. Um, so a Statement of Principle sets out the, the factors that you need to satisfy in order for a condition to be accepted as being service-related. So... Um, they, you would find them for a number of conditions that may be, um, uh, that you would see quite readily with someone that was a service person um, and it sets out the diagnosis of the condition and then what factors they, factor or factors they need to satisfy for those to be determined as being a service-related condition as opposed to a non-work-related condition. Um, so they are pretty restrictive. So if you don't satisfy a statement of principle, then your claim for injury would be rejected. So you've got to meet that criteria in order to be successful with your claim. Um, what we have found in recent times is that um, um, claims that are submitted where the injury is described in a more general fashion um, gives someone a better chance of having their claim accepted because it, um, several different SOPs may be able to be applied. So, for example, um, someone has a back injury, it's better if their claim form indicates that their injury is a lower back injury rather than it being given a specific medical diagnosis 
like a lumbar spondylosis mm -hmm. because if the claim submitted as lumbar spondylosis, then that's the only statement of principle that can really be applied. Mm. Um, whereas if it's submitted in a more general fashion, then there could be a number of different SOPs that are related to a lumbar injury that could potentially be applicable to that person. So it just, it, it makes it more open to them to be able to fit into a range of SOPs than so just So it gives the client a little bit more room to, room to move. Yeah. Um, which is, it's sort of counterintuitive, you know, when, when you, especially when you consider the, the legal profession as a whole, which is sort of so detail driven yeah. that, you know, that there is this option to, you know, I guess, sort of have a bit more room to breathe and, and, and have a bit more, you know, options, I yeah. guess. So it's a different test that you would use to a, a, a CIRCA, SRCA claim. It's a complete, you wouldn't use a SOP for a right. CIRCA claim. So they're, they're quite um, difficult to meet sometimes, but it, it, does, it is more helpful if the claim form is more general in terms of what the condition is. Is it a right shoulder injury <clears throat> or a lower back injury? Keep it broad if possible because it just betters the chances of being able to meet a SOP. Yeah, that's... I think that's really valuable insight for a lot of our listeners right there. Also, just with that, if um, a client or member receives a, a determination where a low back injury has been rejected, it's important that they think about, well, is that diagnosis that's been put on the letter I've got actually correct? So as Brianna was talking about, the, a doctor or, yeah, probably a doctor will put a label on the condition that you've claimed for or the DVA might, and let's say it's lumbar spondylosis, so a low back condition that's well known to military people is lumbar spondylosis. So the doctor might label it that way. It could be your GP. Uh, and then the DVA make a decision rejecting your lumbar spondylosis because you don't fulfil one of the factors Brianna was talking about in the SOP just because it's been rejected for lumbar spondylosis, that's not the end of the considerations. It might be that another SOP better fits the condition that you have. So just because you've had your condition rejected broadly, don't think that's necessarily the end of it because it might be that the DVA have labelled what you have incorrectly. So it might be that you don't have lumbar spondylosis, you just have a soft tissue strain or sprain and there's a separate SOP for sprain and strain that has a lower threshold and other different factors to consider than what the SOP does for lumbar spondylosis. So that's just an example in relation to low back. It applies equally to any part of the body, um, arms, legs, uh, whatever, it might be that more than one SOP is applicable to you. So don't think that you just narrowed down to the SOP that the DVA have used. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so don't, don't let yourself be narrowed down and also don't ever take the first offer. Seems to be the, the sort of the rising theme yeah, of, the, of, of this thing. Yeah. We'll be back to this discussion in just a moment. Do you need legal advice? TGB is a highly respected Australian law firm that can help you with most legal issues, including injury compensation, workplace issues, estate planning, criminal matters, as well as business and property. TGB's clients are diverse, including families, employees, businesses and associations. Get the right advice. Visit tgb.com.au to arrange an appointment at your nearest office. 
sort of just sort of changing tack a little bit here. Um, could we discuss for a minute, you know, what happens once you're actually out of the military and 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 you know being terminated or discharged, you know, however it may have happened. Um, what are the things to consider within that? Um, you know, because obviously there's there's a lot of things there because it, it's the military is still a workplace as such. You know, so it's going to involve things like you know your super and, and lots of other things like that. Um, what's what's that process when you when, when you're terminated? Yeah, there's a lot going on when that happens uh, to a member and they could be being terminated because of a work injury or because of a non-work related injury. It might be something completely external to uh, the Army, Navy or Air Force that's causing them to be discharged. I suppose there's a lot of information available at that time and some really good information provided by the DVA or the uh, particular service that the person's in. So I know there's a lot of transition conferences and seminars people can go to when they're going through this phase. So I suppose the first thing is to make sure that people are getting help and that they're going to those presentations and speaking to um, a legal officer that might be on the base or uh, a reserve legal officer or um, seeking external legal advice if they think they should, which a lot of the times is probably essential but the um, I suppose these are the main ones firstly they need to think about what claims if any have I submitted to the DVA or do I need to submit so if I've got a work-related injury and I'm being medically discharged because of that they need to make sure the claim forms have been filed with the Department of Veteran Affairs for those injuries they also need to submit similar uh, documentation but completely separate with military superannuation so that's separate forms separate criteria different government body uh, but you're listing the same injuries as you are that you've submitted to the DVA because they're two separate payments potentially and um, those forms can take quite some time months uh, to process so it's very important to get the timing right for this because uh, once you are um, discharged from the military, what happens with income? And um, it stops, doesn't it? So if these forms with the DVA military super aren't put in at the right time, there can be quite a large gap between those payments starting and when you've been discharged from the military. Um, the other thing to consider not just in terms of uh, compensation, is do I want to challenge the decision uh, to be dismissed? So there are administrative issues there where what we're seeing increasingly is people are being discharged for non-work-related conditions. Um, so it might be that they have a particular medical condition that might put some restrictions on them, but it might not prevent them from doing a lot of the duties in the military. So people need to give some consideration to do I want to challenge that termination notice? And it might be that there's some administrative avenues through which to challenge that. And what I'm talking about there is things like has there been procedural fairness with the notice that you've been given? Have they referred to all the relevant factors to make a decision about whether or not you should be discharged? So well, that could be really traumatic, couldn't it? Because for a lot of people... Yeah, you know, their big career military. You know, like they, they 
it's what they've always wanted to yeah. do. They've loved it. They've spent years and years. Like this is like anything else, you know. If you love being a lawyer, or a plumber, or whatever, this is your career and you love it, and you've been pushed out. So That's it. that sounds like something that would just be you know quite heartbreaking for a lot of people as well. It is, absolutely, and often the skill set that they've got from being in the military is very uh, specific and it can make transitioning into the civilian world really difficult. So, yeah, you've got all the emotional commitment, friendships um, and uh, that collegiate feel from being in the military and then you're being pushed away or taken out of that and then you've got the extra added pressure of how am I going to find a suitable job in the civilian world as well. So there is a lot to consider and um, sometimes the decision might be wrong and uh, you might be able to successfully challenge it through an administrative appeal. I suppose it's important to, if it is a work-related injury, make sure those documents are in with the DVA and military super because that's going to give some financial protection um, if you're not able to get work quickly after leaving the military. But also think about um, getting advice if you want to challenge that decision through an administrative avenue because that's probably uh, the most um, viable way of doing it and then that might mean that the, that the termination doesn't occur. If you've been... Say, I, say I've been discharged and I want to challenge that, um, but I'm, I'm out... Is there any sort of a, a, a bridging payment or some sort of support while I'm waiting for that appeal? For, only, for, for only, the situation? If, only if um, you have a claim accepted right. by the DVA right. yep, or military super. So that's why it's important to make sure those claims forms are put in uh, well before you be actually are discharged right. so that at least there's some money coming in. Mm-hmm. So... Let's say that you know I've I've left the military and you know, it's been some years since. Can I still make a claim if it's been five years, ten years, twenty years? Is there a limit on when I can actually say, "Hang on a minute, this injury that I've been grappling with for all this time is actually related to my time in the military"? So, so short answer is no. There isn't a time limit. Um, it is obviously better to try and get the claim forms into the DVA sooner rather than later. Um, but what is more relevant is is when was the injury sustained because then you work out what piece of legislation applies to that person and then what entitlements might flow from that. Um, particularly with people that have got psychological conditions, their symptoms may not present and then be given a label for some years after exposure anyway. So there's, there's not a time limit as such, but... Um, you know, the sooner the claim forms go in, the better um, to enable proper assessment of the claim. And I think uh, Tim just mentioned as well that, that claim forms can go in while someone is still enlisted as well. It's not like you've got to wait to be discharged um, to be able to submit claims to the DVA. They can still be assessed while someone is still enlisted in the services as well. The other day, uh, I saw a client that um, was a former SAS soldier and incredibly had been through some extraordinary things and uh, just hadn't had time or the opportunity to submit Mm. certain claims and he'd been discharged for 10 years or more and so there's no there's no limit or prohibition against him now putting those 
claims in, legitimate claims through the DVA for things that had occurred uh, physically whilst he was in the army and um, I'm sure there'll be no difficulties with having most of them accepted, if not all of them. It's just that he didn't have time to put them in when he was discharging and he's been busy since and uh, just wasn't in the right frame of mind to deal with that process until more recently and I don't expect um, most if not all of those conditions uh, to be anything other than accepted by the DVA once the relevant paperwork's gone in and the medical evidence is there to back them up. What about if, um, if you, know, you don't get the outcomes that you're hoping for? What's the appeals process um, for, for this? So again, and you're all giving me a look like, <laughs> how much more time have we got? So. <laughs> so it's all dependent on what sort of claim you have as to what appeal process applies. Right. So um, just to complicate things even further. So if you've got a, um, a, a MRCA, MRCA claim, um, and you've had a determination uh, since January of this year, then your appeal will need to go through the Veterans Review Board. So prior to that, so that's changed this year. So prior to that, you used to be able to ask for an internal review from the DVA first, and then had, you had the option of doing it internally through the DVA or going to the Veterans Review Board. Now, since January of this year, the only option is Veterans Review Board first. Um, and then if a person is not happy with the outcome from the Veterans Review Board, uh, they can then appeal further to the AAT, Administrative Appeals Tribunal, um, and that's where Tim and I do a lot of work at, at that tribunal. Um, and for SRCA, CIRCA claims, um, that internal review is still available for people. So they would get a determination from the DVA if they're not happy with the, the outcome, they can ask for an internal review. Um, so it's it's done by an, another DVA delegate. Um, further information can be submitted to the DVA at that point in time. And that review, you need to request that within 30 days of receiving the decision. Um, and then if you're not happy with the outcome from that internal review, then you would make your way to the AAT as well. So eventually it all ends up in the one place, um, but just through a different path. Fantastic. Guys, um, thanks so much for your time today. Um, there's been you know, a ton of so interesting stuff, some confusing stuff, but you've done an excellent job, at, I guess, you know, sort of showing the different pathways that are available to um, defence personnel out there. Um, if this is your first time listening, be sure to check out um, part one of this podcast, um, which came up in the Law and Life, um, which is on iTunes and SoundCloud. We put that up a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we have... You know, so much uh, other content um, around blogs and podcasts uh, relating to military and all other you know, potential solutions and information about life's problems at www.tgb.com.au. So uh, check that out. Um, if we can ever help with anything, um, we've got offices in right across South Australia and Western Australia, Northern Territory, and uh, now Brisbane as well. Um, but 
with uh, all things military related, of course, this is national legislation and uh, Tim and Brianna do a fine job in helping people right across the country and internationally as well. So, um, you know, by all means, look them up on the website, drop them a line via email, give us a buzz um, at our head office on 0882121077 and uh, thanks for listening. Hope to see you again soon. Cheers. You've been listening to Law and Life, a podcast brought to you by TGB Lawyers. Make sure you subscribe to the show and for the latest podcast updates and news, visit tgb.com.au forward slash podcasts. TGB is a leading Australian law firm specialising in injury compensation, employment issues, family and divorce, wills and estates, criminal and traffic, business and property. To arrange an appointment, contact the TBG team or read blogs and content, visit tgb.com.au. Please be aware that discussions on this podcast are general in nature, true at the time of recording and should not be considered legal advice. If you are facing a legal issue, seek advice from a lawyer specific to your circumstances.